with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. It's Monday, and so it is Mayor's Monday on WHMP, and we have with us this Monday the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. This is Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome you back to the show. Mr. Mayor, uh, I hardly know where to start. I'm really tempted to go back to what we were talking about just before we came on the air because I'm always fascinated with things I had no idea about. So let me share this with you, the listener. The mayor of Holyoke has just revealed to me, and probably to others too, that the city of Holyoke City Hall has never been dedicated. The building dedication has been waiting. It's been waiting, and it's been waiting for to be dedicated for how long, Mr. Mayor? 150 years. <laughs> 150 years. That's a long time how, to wait. How old were you then, Bill? <laughs> okay. Yeah, <right>. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, Buzz. Um, so, but in fact, this is we're not making this up. This is true, and there is going to be a dedication of the City Hall building in Holyoke soon. Finally, after 150 years, the time has come. That is right. Why has the time come, and how are you going to dedicate the building? Well, first, again, guys, always a pleasure. Thank you for always inviting me back to your show. Uh, so Holyoke this year is celebrating its 150, 150th since it was incorporated as a city back in 1873. And when uh, leadership before us uh, built City Hall, uh, during that time, it was never officially dedicated. And every public building that gets built gets dedicated. You'll see a plaque, who the architects were, who the mayor um, is, who the, 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 the DPW commissioners are at that time. And uh, City Hall has never been dedicated. So we're very much looking forward to uh, do that so that we can be sure that this building it continues to be dedicated to the community for civic engagement and practicing good governance. Did you have to do research on, I mean, I don't mean to say that people don't remember who was the mayor 150, 150 years ago, but I, I frankly, I, I don't. And the building commissioner at the time and the city councilors, do, do you have to research all that? Yeah, we do. I mean, all of that's documented. Um, when Holyoke celebrated 70th, 75th back in 1970, I think three or so, um, uh, what was it? The, the Holyoke Transcript uh, did a newspaper and had, it was amazing. They really took a deep dive into the history of the city, including even adding the minutes from when the government first formed, when it became incorporated, they had their first mayor, what they talked about during that time and uh, really kind of helped, you know, unravel a lot of things. But we have this wonderful historian that works for the city of Holyoke, Penny, she uh, works out of the Wisteria Hearst Museum that um, is the keeper of the city's uh, historical artifacts. And it's all there documented. So um, we'll be, uh, we're very much looking forward to finally on April 6th uh, get the building dedicated. So, uh, uh, Mayor Garcia, usually there are shovels involved in such enterprises, but 150 <laughs> years later, doesn't sound right, or there are ribbon cuttings. Or yeah, hit it with a bottle of champagne. What are you, are you going to use a, like a volleyball? What are, what are you going to do to dedicate this building? <laughs> well, we do have a committee of folks planning on what that day looks like. Um, invitation has gone out to dignitaries and leadership across the 
region and the Commonwealth, the community has been invited. It's going to start around three, right on the steps of City Hall. We'll head up to the ballroom for a uh, reception. Um, uh, I believe on that day we're doing a time capsule, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, we're hoping to open that up for um, another 50 years or so, uh, at least what's being described to me from members of the committee. So. so this is a time capsule to put in items from now to be opened in 50 or 100 years, or it's a time capsule right. from, oh, I see. okay. So uh, 150 years ago, this City Hall of Holyoke was built and uh, became operational. I guess dedicating it this year is testament to the adage, uh, better late than never. Was there some <laughs> was there some specific event where someone said, hey, we really have to dedicate City Hall? I mean, how did this come to your attention? Well, we got a, a, on the committee, we have very active, strong Hoyokers that pay attention to these things. And, and we do have a group of uh, citizens, volunteers that, uh, friends of City Hall that really look out for these things and here we are now uh, celebrating Holyoke's 150th and you put these minds together and you know you get things like this which you know these are the very things that build pride in our community uh the city hall is a landmark it's a beautiful building there's a lot of history from the time when Holyoke you know Holyoke's the first planned industrial city uh, in the country and and the folks before us when they built city hall uh, what they wanted the building to represent when people see it. Um, and even from, you know, where the artifacts came from. So the, 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 the stone, the city hall stone came from, uh, the town of Munson. There was a quarry over there. Um, so it's, it's got a, it's a lot of history, what it represents, uh, the, it's the, uh, the neutral zone for residents of every corner of the city to come together and, and, uh, uh, build upon the quality of life in the city. So, you know, we all said, hey, that makes sense. Let's 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 do it. Let's make it happen. Is this one of many events that is going to occur in celebration of Holyoke's 150th anniversary? So it's a year-long festival, really. Number one, we're um, embracing existing events, traditional events that happen annually, just like the St. Patrick's festivities that's happening this weekend. Um, uh, we have annual events that happen over the summer. Um, and then there's other events plan being planned in between um, to celebrate Holyoke's 150th. We do have a gala that's coming up, I believe being planned for November. It'll be here at City Hall up in the, in the auditorium. Um, and, uh, I was going to say the the events are just are meant to um, keep Holyoke's 150th on the forefront of people's mind and getting people to come together and and, and celebrate the city's existence. You just mentioned St. Patrick's Day. The St. Patrick's Day parade in Holyoke is a world famous, certainly a, a, a famous event throughout the country, and certainly in the Irish community. An ongoing, still a big deal in Holyoke. This St. Patrick's Day parade. That is true. This weekend, we have the, I believe it's the 70th annual road race, Saturday, and then Sunday is the parade. And they say it's the second largest St. Patrick's Day parade, but if you speak to any Holyoker, we'll definitely tell you it's number one. 
Right. Uh, what, what, what do those people in Boston know? Really? Come on. What do the people in Boston know? This is Hoyoke, baby. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, we're certainly going to be celebrating um, uh, the St. Patrick stuff this weekend. If you go to explorehoyoke.com, there lists all the different events that you can certainly, you know, check out and plan for and be a part of. Um, uh, explorehoyoke.com has a lot of uh, information on, you know, things to do and also events coming up that people might want to participate in. The lines in the streets, are they going to be painted green? We got shamrocks being painted on the uh, on the streets, so that's there along the pl- uh, along the parade route. And what what role will Mayor O Garcia play? <laughs> well, I, I I'll be in the parade marching uh, with the city contingent. Uh, we've done we've done our Irish flag raising. Um, we've also done the Irish flag raising over at the JFK Memorial that we have here, and at these events. I share a lot about the Irish-Puerto Rican connection. A lot of people don't know uh, the connection, the history between the two two groups um, from the time when folks were fleeing Ireland because of the potato famine or were being forced to uh, fight in the uh, British War, people jumping ship and uh, going ashore of the islands of uh, the island of Puerto Rico and how folks settled there. And a prominent uh, Puerto Rican leader um, uh, even helped draft the Irish uh, independence document. So it's a lot of different connections. And here we now, here we are now in Holyoke, two groups breaking bread together, building uh, the city. And and, um, I'm just very thrilled to be in this position uh, to partner with my um, brothers and sisters of Irish descent as Holyokers as we build our community. Mayor Garcia, you've mentioned a number of celebrations going on in Holyoke. One of the celebrations that will certainly be uh, uh, of enormous import to the city, to the region, to the state, is the Victory Theater when that project is finally completed. For those of our listeners who say, I'm not sure what this project is exactly, tell us and tell us what the progress is, because it is a matter of huge significance, I think, to the entire region. If we, hey, listen, the Victory Theater, well, for those who don't know what the Victory Theater is, it's one of the oldest um, theaters of of its kind that can actually, large enough to house Broadway shows. Uh, it's, it's, it's been closed since 1970s, and for the past, I want to say about 30, no, 20 years, 20-ish years, um, there has been a capital fundraising campaign to help restore the Victory Theater. And, um, uh, you know, the the group, the organization, MIFA, Massachusetts International Festival of the Arts, have raised uh, over half, they need 60 million total. They have a little more than half, um, and there's about a $15 million gap uh, currently, and a lot of us citizens here in the community are trying anything and everything we can to help close this gap so that we can get this building restored and into the hands of um, the community for art, you know, for different events, arts and culture, um, theater, things of that nature. So, and 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 it's a really a, a it's a, a anchor opportunity for our downtown. 
Um, you know, we, we got a lot of different economic development initiatives happening in the core of our downtown, and the Victory Theater project is a is a, a really the center focus of that. If we can get it going, but it is what we're calling the last inning, um, and you know, we're trying to do what we can to do that major push to close that gap so we can finally get this project going. And it's a 16, 13 or 1600 seat theater. It is, and it was in its heyday, beautiful. And there's the restoration of the theater to its original grandeur and glory is part of the, part of the project. We had on our show last week, some coverage of the murals from the murals, victory yep. theater that the, which were, uh, which were painted by artists in the works products works, uh, the WPA uh, under President Roosevelt, and those panels are now being displayed at the Wisteria Hearst Museum in Holyoke, another mm -hmm. gem of, of in Holyoke. And I'm wondering if you see this as a a part of a of Holyoke being a being a cultural revival for the not only for the city but for for the region as, as a tourist as a tourist destination. Well, a big a big piece of economic development, when you're talking about the quality of life in any community, you need arts and culture. Um, and uh, this theater has the potential to help really elevate our arts and culture position. Yeah, not just in Holyoke. You're right. Absolutely. This is a regional um, uh, institution where folks from everywhere will come to to take part of and and enjoy uh, arts and culture and also for our local youth we have a um, at our Holyoke High School they do different plays and musicals and uh, Mark Todd shout out to Mark Todd at Holyoke High School um, does an extraordinary job um, with uh, getting these kids in, uh, engaged in, in musical it's always sold out from the day it opens to the to the last day and so if we can get our local talent into a building like the Victory Theater to, you know, and people from everywhere coming into the Victory houses, I think it was 1300 built, but um, it, it's, it, again, you know, talk about really um, advancing our position here uh, with embracing um, arts and culture. And that's what builds civic pride. That's what builds community. Um, and, and I'm really hoping that we can get this thing um, done sooner rather than later because it would be very shameful i think um if we can't close this and we have to knock the building down oh my god that's really a possibility very shameful yeah it can be uh it, it certainly can be uh you know but w thankfully we have a, a a group of committed volunteers uh, an organization that's been committed to this for as long as they have again they've raised more than half of the funds we just got to close that little bit of that little gap of 15 million dollars um so we can get this off the ground um this isn't just some feel-good project this is a um this is a game-changing project and again not from just for holyoke but for western massachusetts this is the only theater in western mass of its kind that can that could potentially how people that are spending money in western massachusetts uh, to go to theater shows, they're going, they're going south, they're going east, they're going into Connecticut, they're going to Boston. 
this building has the potential to keep those dollars here um, and um, those activities here. And, uh, you know, it definitely is going to be a, a game-changing opportunity. But again, if we can't close that gap, Bill, there's no, you know, right, no but other what, option. But what an opportunity, Mayor. I mean, I mean, bringing 1,300 people downtown to spend money, go to restaurants, go to bars, uh, to congregate, to go to the yeah, stores. I mean, what a game changer. We are speaking with the mayor of Holyoke. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. We'll be back more with Mayor Joshua Garcia right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., eCycle releases certificates for their spin studio in Wilbraham. eCycle is a high-energy environment spin studio with a diverse schedule that will tailor to your fitness, from beginners to competitive levels. Classes focus on endurance, strength, intervals, high intensity, and recovery. Get your spin on at eCycle, and this Tuesday, you save 30%. eCycle in Wilbraham, available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. On Tuesday, March 21st, Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts invites you to attend our annual Celebrity Bartender event from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Student Prince. This year's celebrity lineup includes Al Casper, Savage Arms, Amanda Garcia, Elms College, Ryan Hauser, Police Motor Group, Matt McGuire, TD Bank, Carla Casenzi, Tommy Carr Auto Group, Mayor Dominic Sarno, and Rock 102's own Steve Nagel. All are welcome as we raise support for JA's work inspiring youth to succeed in the Pioneer Valley since 19. 19. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday, we continue our conversation with the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Mr. Mayor, there was a few weeks ago, a little over a month ago now, a highly critical report of the Holyoke Police. It was an assessment done, done at your request, and mm-hmm. there were any number of very serious deficiencies uh, in the Holyoke Police Department that were highlighted by this report, including potential liabilities for the city. And this police department was, in fact, described as presenting an enormous risk, liability risk, to the city. I'm wondering what, right. what your response has been and what, what the reception has been to this report, both politically and in the community. So... When I campaigned, we, you know, you heard me talk a lot about getting some sort of an audit done. There's a, there's a lot of what people think might be happening in there. 
you know, you get a lot of different uh, kitchen debate, you know, dining room debates, community debates on what people think might be happening. Never real, uh, there's never been a real opportunity to have an, our community come together and have an honest discussion of what might be going on. And, and that's when I said, look, let's just get an audit in there, an independent third party to come in and do some sort of analysis and um, help start the conversation. And I try to remind folks that, you know, the, the audit that came out, that report is not the covenant, it's not the Holy Bible, it's not the, the grail, but it starts the conversation um, uh, with trying to at least understand the root causes of the problems. Um, and from there, we can then pivot and make the necessary change to improve our position and services uh, within the, the uh, within the department. Um, and so here we are today. We got that report. I felt I feel like. Um, Do you think? Let me interrupt for one second, because you had touted the report, or at least before it was released, saying this is going to be important. This will give us direction. This will give us the baseline for what we're doing wrong and what we might be doing right. And there was a lot that was found. Do you think that was wrong? Do you think the report was fair? I think that the report, <clears throat> so we're in a community where every corner of our city is different. We got a lot of perspectives, perceptions, personalities, thoughts, differences, and uh, no matter who you talk to, you know, you'll have some folks that'll say, hey, the, you know, uh, report was fair, other groups that don't think, and then we, we have a different approach to the report, and then that then changes where some groups will say it wasn't fair and another group will say it wasn't fair it's it's a starting point um and when i say starting point i mean you know there's a lot of quality of life issues that we see in our community and concerns that have came up stories that we've heard issues that have taken place and um in that report really to me when i read it i say okay well i see that makes sense i see why we're having these issues um, when you see like uh, issues around best practices, policies, procedures, um, uh, uh, the, the, the capacity, the hours uh, an officer spends on patrol um, or the lack thereof. I mean, these are things that, you know, in my mind, I read this and I say, all right, we'd have to do a better job in these areas if we're going to close these gaps. Uh, a big part of that was accreditation. Um, if we strive for accreditation, the police department will, is not accredited. It's not accredited. Um, if it, it, I think that it'll really help us solve a lot of these uh, challenges that um, we hear about and we experience from time to time. And, and the other thing too is like this is an audit within the police department. What could be doing differently? Keep in mind how you improve really invest more in youth programs and uh, preventative services and, and whatnot. That's how you, you know, really improve community safety. Um, but at the same time, we're looking at um, operational deficiency, trying to mitigate liability right now. Um, and I think that, you know, it's brought to light some things that we, we kind of sort of knew about, or, you know, like I said, we've debated things in the past, um, but now it, it's, it's clear, it says, here are the issues, um, and if we just, you know, work together to navigate those by implementing change, how we get there, um, you know, it'll it'll close some of these deficiencies. Mayor Garcia, let me ask you some specifics. The report says, 
and you just just uh, alluded to this, that a very large percentage of patrol officers actually are not on patrol. They're doing paperwork. They're do cleaning cars. They're doing whatever else they're doing, but they're not doing what they're really paid to do, which is to be patrol officers. Um, and at the same time, Holyoke has an enormous overtime budget for the police. Um, and in addition to that, the report pointed out that uh, the use of force protocols uh, fall short and, and are really incomplete. I mean, it seems to me there's an enormous amount of work to do internally, both in terms of hiring and uh, process and uh, administrative changes and training yep. and accreditation, all that. I mean, it seems to me there's an enormous amount of work to do. It's not just a conversation. There are things that need to be done to make the Holyoke Police Department safer, better, more productive, less of uh, less expensive and more efficient and needs to be done now. I mean, that's what the report seems to say. Disagree? So there are, yeah, there are, and, and don't get it wrong, there, there are a lot of, there are things happening. So the report offers a reflection of where we're vulnerable. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing that, that we're doing things bad and that we're doing things illegally. It's where we're vulnerable, like the use of force. We don't have a police department going out there in our community abusing the community. But what they're saying is there's no use of force policy. And if there is an issue where someone challenges and there's no pot, you know what I mean? So, and that's where accreditation is the, is the umbrella of it. Like if you strive for accreditation, it helps. Um, and, and not only does it help create the best practices to be sure that your, um, uh, closing those vulnerability areas, it, it checks in. So, you know, the organization that does the accreditation after a year comes back, looks at um, how you operated, confirms if whether or not you've acted within policy and, and so forth. So it really keeps you in a straight line. Um, but there were some other points you made that I wanted to speak to. Um, Bill, if you could just remind, rewind just a little bit. You talked about... Well, I talked about the overtime I talked about the overtime. and the use of force policy, the, uh, which you oh. mentioned, and the uh, patrol officers not patrol officers. Yes. So historically, here in the city of Holyoke, and this is not unique just with police, is with all departments, is that the 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 mayor's office has always been challenged with with of saving money. So what happened is instead of being proactive in, in trying to navigate services, efficiency meant cut, 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 cut. And so departments kind of got used to operating that environment and saying, all right, this year, you know, we got to keep the, the target number at this dollar amount. Um, and so at the police department, they got creative and said, okay, well, we can't add. I definitely need to get these things done though. So instead of hiring civilians to do um, work, they said, all right, they started taking away from their patrol and reassigning them to do the work that they needed to get done. Um, not cleaning cars though, but yeah, no, that was, that was, that, <laughs> but they, but they were, they were doing some, uh, ministerial, um, right. Of, so for example, we had a Sergeant that was grant managing, was doing all the grants. This was a, a police officer managing grants. Which a civilian we, could do, and you don't need to be paying a, just, a, very, just high, a very highly paid officer time and right. a half or double time for doing work that a civilian could do at a fraction exactly. of the cost. And, and, I, there's and, I, a, and so in the report, you'll notice recommendations to civilianize a lot of those um, positions that officers are doing that a normal civilian can be doing and repurposing those 
those those cops to actual policing work. Um, and so there's a combination of things we need to do to build up um, our position on the patrolling area, which includes um, getting our officers back to patrolling um, and then also uh, uh, bringing on new officers to hit our target. By the end of the fiscal year, we should be at 94. We've always, for the last decade, have been about at about 80 officers or so. And mind you, you have folks who are injured on duty and that takes away from that. And, you know, they got uh, the report did talk about renegotiating things in their contract. They have a lot of time off um, and those are areas that we can work toward. And, but, yet, um, and yet, Mayor Garcia, I just because I'm only interrupting because we are short on time. And I just want to ask this question because I just saw the Mass Live report by uh, Louis uh, Fieldman. And he says that of your four, almost $40 million uh, budget for public employees in, in 2022, that of the top 10 highest earners in the city's payrolls, seven yes, were police officers. Seven were so, police officers. And you, and you talked about when we first talked about Dusty... Christensen's report that complaints weren't being addressed. You said we just don't have enough personnel in order to address those people, those complainants to actually write to them and say, we got their complaint. So I just have to ask you about that. So as far as overtime and, and, and folks, I think get, get a little confused um, when it comes to overtime, we have our base pay for officers that we budget for. And then there is overtime that we budget for for when we're when officers get held back or officers go on vacation and we need to cover time then there's detail work and that's where officers when you see a a a, a cop making 160 200,000 that's not 200,000 of local taxpayer money um and also like you're talking about time that you know hey we get the calls right like if people are speeding in our neighborhood, we need more patrol in the neighborhood. We need this event covered. We need that covered. And with the available bodies that we have, you put out the detail work. Officers who are available sign up for the detail work, and they're getting paid for what they're being asked to do. And when you have one cop signing up for all the detail work, it's very easy for an officer to make 160, 180,000. Mind you, they're working, you know, they're working for that dollar amount. So I. When you really decipher what they're making, it starts to make more more sense. But at the same time, like we don't have a lot of bodies to sign up for that. So it's very easy for a handful of cops that actually want to work because we do have a handful of cops that really want their time and they'll, they'll just do their minimum. And when detail work, they won't sign up for road work. They won't sign up for events or anything like that. Um, and that's where we really start to get and in a and you know get backed up in a corner because the community wants officers at these things they want these services so it's not you know there's this misconception out there where you know local taxpayer money we're paying cops hundred and two hundred thousand that's that's outside detail work we have the mall um that pays cops to be present we have iso that actually that hires cops to cover their gate folks that know about iso is um the the electricity distributor for uh, communities all across New England. It's right here in Holyoke. They hire local cops on their payroll to cover that gate, but we, we, it, 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 they get paid through our system, right? So it's if you break down those numbers, you, it starts to make sense. But when you look at it at face value and how it gets reported, it's really easy for us to emotionally react and say, "This is this is crazy." 
We're going to have to leave it there, Mr. Mayor. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. We've been speaking with the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, who is with us every month. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Really appreciate your time. See you at the parade. See you at the parade, indeed. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A serious head-on car crash in Greenfield on the Mohawk Trail shut down Route 2 in both directions for several hours yesterday afternoon. A total of five people sustained injuries, including two parents from one vehicle who were airlifted to Bay State Medical Center's trauma unit while their two children were transported by ambulance. A fifth unrelated person was sent by ambulance to Bay State Franklin Medical Center. No word on the cause of the crash. However, police say they did find a suspicious substance in one of the vehicles. The crash is under investigation by Greenfield Police Department, Massachusetts State Police, and the Northwestern DA's office. Applicants for an all-alcohol liquor license in Amherst will find out who gets the coveted license on Thursday. The Board of License Commissioners will hold a virtual hearing at 5 p.m. to determine who out of the four applicants will get the license, which is just one of eight that Amherst is allowed in that category by state law. The Deerfield Planning Board is seeking more information about a proposed cannabis campus. The site plan review is underway for a proposed marijuana dispensary and cultivation facility and research lab in Routes 5 and 10. Sunny Days has already undergone a peer review and filed responses with the planning board last month, but the board is seeking additional information about certain parts of the plan, including traffic and odor. Sunny Days' public hearing is continued to the planning board's April 3rd meeting. Some scattered light rain and snow showers today. Little to no accumulation. Mild with a high of 40 to 44. Tonight, a steadier rain-snow mix in the valley and steady snow in the hills will change over to all snow everywhere later on in the evening. An overnight low of 28 to 34. Snow and wind tomorrow, heaviest in the morning, a high of 32 to 36. Lingering wind and flurries on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El líder republicano del Senado, Mitch McConnell, se unió a un coro de ataques generalizados contra el presentador de Fox News, Tucker Carlson, por su descripción del ataque del 6 de enero al Capitolio desde que accedió a más de 40.000 horas de imágenes de seguridad. Carlson y su equipo tuvieron acceso exclusivo a la cinta de seguridad que rodeaba el ataque gracias al presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, lo que generó preocupaciones de que el anfitrión usaría las cintas para difundir una nueva ola de desinformación. McConnell dijo que se alineó con los comentarios emitidos el martes por la mañana por el jefe de policía del Capitolio de los Estados Unidos, Tom Manger, a sus bases criticando las conclusiones ofensivas y engañosas de Carlson sobre el asedio. McConnell dijo que los comentarios de Manger son la opinión correcta, pero el líder republicano del Senado no llegó a criticar al presidente de la Cámara cuando se le preguntó si McCarthy cometió un error al darle acceso a Carlson a las imágenes de seguridad. McConnell respondió diciendo, mi preocupación es cómo se representó, que es un tema diferente. En otras informaciones, la Casa Blanca dijo que respaldó la legislación presentada el martes por una docena de senadores para otorgar a la administración nuevos poderes para prohibir la aplicación de video TikTok de propiedad china si representan amenazas para la seguridad nacional. El respaldo impulsa los esfuerzos de varios legisladores para prohibir la popular aplicación, la cual es utilizada por más de 100 millones de estadounidenses. El proyecto de ley le da al Departamento de Comercio la capacidad de imponer restricciones que incluyen la prohibición de 
TikTok y otras tecnologías que presentan riesgos para la seguridad nacional, dijo el senador demócrata Mark Warner, quien preside el Comité de Inteligencia. El presidente ejecutivo de TikTok, Zhou Zhichu, comparecerá ante el Congreso el 23 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith Crooks, Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff, who have with them and us today. Professor Amakar Shabazz from the African American Studies Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We'll also be joined by uh, another very special guest in just a few moments, which I'll leave the pleasure of the introduction to Carly. Let me turn the microphone over now to Professor Carly Tartikoff. Carly. Good morning. Um, we want to focus our conversation today on Black-owned businesses in the Valley. And Ms. Longtime entrepreneur and owner of more than three businesses in Amherst uh, is with us today. And joining her is Milkar Shabazz, Dr. Milkar Shabazz, who is a professor in the Department of Afroam at UMass. He has an interest in supporting Black businesses in the Valley with us. Um, and both are members of the Black Business Association, the BBA. So we're going to be exploring their journeys uh, in business and talk about what it takes to be successful in predominantly white towns, such as Amherst, uh, as African Americans. We will also briefly touch on the recent controversy around the Amherst Business Improvement District's bid of being called out for discrimination in its awarding of the American Rescue Plan funding. Um, so let's start with is uh, Let's start with uh, Amakar Shabazz because we are waiting for uh, Pat and Anabaku to join us. Hi. Hi. Yes, I'm very honored to uh, to be present today and to engage in this discussion. You know, the um, one of it, as I've looked at the history of um, Greater uh, Amherst area, one of the most notable events in terms of uh, of the history involving African Americans in the uh, was the visit of the of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington came here. Uh, it was part of the um, uh, establishment of the second uh, predominantly or historically African-American church, uh, Goodwin Memorial AME Church. And uh, he came to, uh, to, to honor that and to support that uh, um, development, but also to support black businesses in the area. He, of course, uh, was the founder of uh, a, uh, an association for the promotion of black businesses. And it was quite uh, quite an event is, uh, is coming to the area. But I see Ms. Pat is here, and so I'll make space for her to come on into the conversation as well. Okay, Pat, Ms. Pat. 
Perfection. Good morning, all. Can you hear me? Yes. We can hear you fine. And uh, in the introduction, exactly. in the introduction, Carly did note that you were the owner of some three businesses in the area, yes. I think in Amherst. So Pat and Anabaku, the uh, question that Carly had raised was, and the issue she's raised is the particular challenges of being a black owned business uh, in a predominantly white area. And she asked if you could address that. Yes. So I'm a serial businesswoman. I used to run um, a restaurant in Amherst and that was very challenging. And uh, personally, I felt invisible and excluded uh, in a majority white uh, business community. So a group of us um, decided to form Black Business Association of Amherst area in 2016. Personally, um, I currently I have uh, actually four businesses, um, two in Hadley and two in Amherst. Oh, My primary you. business is Baku Care. We service um, adults with disabilities and older adults. And they come to our program. We have nurses, uh, drivers, uh, chef, and uh, personal care uh, CNAs that work for us. I also have a, a rental company as well in Hadley. In Amherst, um, we provide services for individuals with disabilities in their home. And in addition to that, I also have a retail e-commerce business uh, called Backus Sleepwear. So challenges more than anything else, um, for me, I'm actually fortunate to be able to have a strategic relationship with a local bank, cooperative bank, uh, Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Um, my contact person there is, um, his name is Adam. A great guy. Um, he gave me a chance and I was able to run a very successful business in Hadley uh, that, that is valued more than a million dollars. So I'm so grateful for him. And this is the challenges uh, Black-owned businesses, uh, my group is struggling with access, discrimination. I just uh, last year in 20, in 2022, our town distributed upper funds without a robust community engagement. We were excluded from the funding. Um, we didn't even know about it. However, most of the money for businesses went into the hands of white people. And um, we have started the talks with our town manager um, to, you know, recognize us that our members were impacted by by the COVID and is still struggling. And um, so that's where we are. Uh, our membership is free to anyone who, you know, identifies themselves as black and is free. <laughs> and we meet once every month, every third Sunday of each month at 2 p.m. I'll stop there. I did have challenges. Uh, um, it's just not being part of decision making when it comes to um, issues that impact economic development in our town and also when in the distribution of resources. So none of our members got any funding. 
Well, I want to hear more about that. We're going to we, absolutely. We, we need yeah. to, we need to break here for just two minutes. We'll be right back. I want to hear more about whether or not there has been a fair and equitable distribution of available funds for businesses in Amherst, or whether there has been, in fact, discrimination. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic, the lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't, but they are good. In fact, they're great, on par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow base daters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, Therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a Therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College in the sleepy part of town. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home, and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Skateboarding, basketball, dancing. Ross Gay has plenty to talk about in his new book, Inciting Joy. Author of the best-selling Book of Delights, Ross Gay returns with Inciting Joy, a collection of essays on joy in its many forms. Pick up Inciting Joy, plus a new paperback edition of Book of Delights at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Plus, order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. We finally entered into a more balanced real estate market. Hi, I'm Craig Delapena, a part of the Trailside team at the Murphy's Realtors. I've been helping buyers and sellers in our valley and beyond for close to 20 years. I specialize in homes near rail trails, as well as antique or historic homes. Together, we'll create a plan that gets you to the next chapter and will minimize your stress along the way. Visit NorthamptonRealtor.com slash innovator. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue Black in the Valley with our segment's hosts, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, Professor Kari Tartikoff, and special guests Pat Ananabaku and Amakar Shabazz. Let me turn the microphone back over to Kari Tartikoff. Kari. Yes. Uh, we left off and uh, di didn't get to ask this question that I think is really important for people in this valley to know. Where are, who are the black 
businesses here. This is questions for businesses are here in the valley, and in particular, Amherst. Pat. So we actually have a variety of, of Black-owned businesses. Uh, the only Black um, hair salon is located in Amherst, Amherst Extensions. We have the only Black barber shop. We have the only restaurant and a bar that is run by two Jamaican uh, family members. We have um, the Black businesses that you know operate transportation. And we have... Um, about Kekri. Kekri, um, that was not able to join us today. Uh, she is about to um, start um, her own business uh, in a couple months. And we also have um, folks who are in, in uh, beauty, uh, braid, hair braiding, um, uh, e-commerce businesses, um, um, fitness, yoga, and things like that. So we do have you know, robust different businesses. However, our struggle is visibility. When the town, um, when they do their events on, on make announcements, they don't include us. We feel very excluded. So we're trying to take our power back to let the community know that we're here um, and we need everyone to support our businesses. I have a question. Uh, historically, uh, putting a face on the business owners, uh, whether it's the business owner or a business seller, um, in my few years on this planet, for instance, in real estate, um, if one goes, one is not, uh, white people aren't as likely to choose a black realtor. Mm -hmm. And I know when I was in New York, um, we had to remove all evidence of our being black for clients to be invited in. When it comes to business here in Amherst area, have you found that facial uh, particularity to be a reality? How does that impact the, the business? I would like Dr. Amelka answer that question, if that's okay. Of course. Uh, fine, that's fine. Amelkar? Professor Amelkar Shabazz? Yes, I, I think it's so important. Um, but let me say this, when I moved, when we moved to Amherst in 2007, we went up to the New Africa house and then we just drove through the center of town trying to get a sense of where, where the heck were we? And um, we saw Baku's African restaurant. And we said, oh, this is inclusive. This is where we are meant to be. And, uh, it, it, and, and that's what's really important when we talk about the facial dimension. Yes, sometimes businesses will, will, will not. Um, I mean, they're trying to get everybody's business. So yeah, they, they don't foreground necessarily, oh, I'm a black business or push their their uh their culture their heritage within the business sometimes it's okay hazel's restaurant is a caribbean uh restaurant so of course they're gonna share their culture that's part of what they exist as a business to do but other businesses not so much and so that's that's to be expected that's not uh aberrant but uh but what what i want to really stress is how these small number of businesses are very vital and the visibility question 
uh, Ms. Pat is raising is so important because it speaks to an inclusive community. When you have black owned businesses thriving and being a part of the fabric of the community. Mm-hmm. We have just a well, minute left, Carly or Jacqueline. Well, I, I have I have a dozen questions, but I'll ask one. Uh, in terms of first generation black entrepreneurs, um, there seems to be little out there that speaks to them that that's inviting or that's supportive. Do you see that based on your coming in? Do you see that as being a challenge to the future? of black businesses in Amherst? And we only have a minute. So it's definitely a, a, a challenge. So what, uh, one of the things that BBA is trying to do is provide mentorship to first generation. All right. Uh, some of us, you know, some of our me- members do not have the luxury of white businesses who already inherited. We're going to have to leave it there. Leave. We, okay. This has been Black in the Valley with Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, Professor Kari Tartikoff, our special guest, Pat Ananabaku, and Professor Amalkar Shabazz. Thank you all so very much. This has been Black in the Valley. Thank you so much. Thank you. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. It's on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And with us is a very special guest, um, the president of the town council in Amherst, the District 2 councilor, Lynn Griesmer. Thank you for joining us, Lynn. Glad to be here. Well, Bill, during the break, you, I'm going to ask you to lead into this because you were articulating what you think is the sum of Amherst issues. Madam President, you are presiding over a town council that is just divided in extraordinarily and intense ways. The town is divided, and it's divided significantly about money and spending money. There is a library project that's going on for years that is now has millions and millions of dollars more that is going to be needed in order to complete the library. Maybe. There are school projects that are going to cost millions and millions of dollars. Some of the town is behind this. Some of the town saying it's not money being wisely spent. There are other infrastructure projects. The town of Amherst is a relatively wealthy town, but it is not a town or a municipality with unlimited funds. 
how are you going to sort this out? What is going to happen? And I've, in the bigger picture, what are the lessons here, not only for Amherst, but for other towns in the region as well? Thanks for the question. The answer is stick to the plan. We've been developing and have had a plan to do our capital projects in Amherst for many years now. It was started under the previous finance director. It had the library, the school, and fire station and DPW, and additional money in the capital plan that's part of the other capital expenditures for roads. We need all of that. And to go off the plan means that any other capital money we have, any capital money, is going to go to continuing to repair buildings that are in serious, serious need. So let me give you the example. The library. The library right now, the town is has committed $15 million plus. The library trustees now have to come up with the rest of the money that will then complement what the Mass Board of Library Commissioners are giving us as part of a grant. If we don't follow through with that, and we decide instead that we will not be able to do that project. We will not get the Mass Board of Library Commissioners grant. The fundraising, which is being done for an addition and renovation, is not for the same purpose. And we're left with repairing the existing library. And the estimated cost for that two years ago, before we saw the enormous inflation is over $15 million. And we're going to have to do the roof in the atrium and also the HVAC system. For that, we will probably have to vacate the library just like we would if we were going to do um, a renovation and addition. So as far as you're concerned, the library project has to go forward and it has to go forward under the plan and with the plan that has been approved both by the library, I guess the trustees, the town and the and the uh, uh, state authority as well. You've been you're saying that plan is the plan and it needs to be completed. That is the plan that at this point the primary or the majority of town councilors support. Okay. So, President Lynn Griesmer of the Amherst Town Council, what about the uh, elementary school building projects? Same thing. We have two elementary schools that are approaching 50 years old. They're outdated from a standpoint of teaching and learning, and the buildings themselves are in terrible shape. So we have before us a very, very significant and costly proposal for a new elementary school. Again, the state is stepping forward in that case with somewhere between 40 to $45 million. If we don't go forward with that debt exclusion vote, we're going to end up having to repair to existing elementary schools and can do continue to pay for the operation of two existing elementary schools. Which is what Amherst did just a few years ago, right? When you lost the grant, you didn't go through with the project, you spent an enormous amount on repairs, and you didn't get the new schools, which you, this town, whatever you think about what should be the new schools, the old schools really have to be replaced. They have to be replaced. And so the cost of not replacing them is we lose the MSBA money. This will be the second time. What, what we are those initials? Mass School Building Authority. Thank you. Uh, this would be the second time we've turned down Mass Building School Authority money. 
and they aren't going to look to have us come back anytime soon. Even this time when we came back, we had to do fund our own planning effort. They wouldn't fund it because they said, well, we've already funded it once for you. So we're in line for that debt exclusion vote. That will be May 2nd. There'll be early voting. There'll be mail-in ballots, which will come out the beginning of April. And the consequences, again, of not voting on that is about $40 million a school. Now, where is that going to come from? The rest of our money. So those people who are saying, but I need my roads repaired, the only way to get to money for roads being repaired is to vote yes for the school. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, all that capital money is going to have to go to keeping our schools in repair. Is there a consensus among town council members? That, I think you see a strong majority, if not 100% of the town council on the school. So if the leaders of the town are saying, this has to be done, it's the only thing that makes any financial sense, and I understand that, where is the uh, wind in the sails of those who are opposing spending money in order to get more money, in order to keep more money? Where, where's the opposition getting its, getting its mojo from? Um, people in Amherst are very terrific residents and very demanding. They want everything. They want the small town feel, and they, yet they don't want any big box stores or commercial kind of businesses like Hadley has. You know where the line is for Hadley and Amherst because it changes dramatically. Amherst wants that small town feel, but it doesn't want the commercial base to support it. So it all falls to our taxpayers. And Res residential taxpayers. Residential taxpayers. Our commercial base is so small, it doesn't really count when it comes to actual taxes. And Madam, we don't have a difference in the tax rate. Did commercial. you happen to notice the wry smile from Amherst resident Dan Torres, who's our producer here, when you said falls on residents? Well, if you're going to say my name, Buzz, I guess I have to ask a question now. And here's my question, and it actually relates to what you were saying, is can Amherst uh, generate the revenue needed to finance the budgets because what I'm hearing you say is, okay, we got to build a library, we got to build a school. Where is the economic engine coming from that? Where is the economic development? Because if Amherst doesn't have that, then everything falls on the taxpayer. But then Amherst is complaining six months later and saying, this town's unaffordable. Nobody can afford to live here. Taxes are higher, rent is higher, everything is higher, and everything's making it worse. It seems like there isn't a sense of economic development that the town needs in order to finance all of these large projects. And I want you to discuss that. So let me bring in two other factors here. First of all, the bid and the chamber, business improvement district and the chamber of commerce have worked diligently to keep those businesses in our town absolutely alive and well and bring in new businesses to replace those we've lost during COVID. So I really want to give them a big, big applause because of the work that they have done. In addition to that, and incredibly important is the work that Senator Joe Comerford and Representative Mindy Dom have done on behalf of Amherst. If you look at our ability as a town to get grants and other state money, it is outstanding. Our town manager, Paul Bachman, has hired a terrific staff that has been able to generate these kinds of money, both federally and at the state level. And we continue to work with our senator and representative to look at other ways. For example, the creation of an account or a fund source that would do other municipal 
buildings like fire stations, Department of Public Works, and other towns maybe police stations. Yeah, and I, I want to point out, and, and I'd like another comment from you, if, if you would, Madam President, which is the town has done a remarkable job of garnering state funds for these major projects. Really, it's a phenomenal amount of money that you've been successful at having having been given to the town from the state. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have. And <coughs> please call me Lynn. <laughs> okay, Lynn, we are going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about your conversation. Because it's, with... it's a small town and we're all on our first name basis. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we're going to talk about your conversations with Senator Joe Comerford and other representatives about funds for the schools. We'll be right back with Lynn, president of town council. Thank you. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. We finally entered into a more balanced real estate market. Hi, I'm Craig Delapena, a part of the Trailside team at the Murphy's Realtors. I've been helping buyers and sellers in our valley and beyond for close to 20 years. I specialize in homes near rail trails, as well as antique or historic homes. Together, we'll create a plan that gets you to the next chapter and will minimize your stress along the way. Visit NorthamptonRealtor.com innovator. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov slash WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., eCycle releases certificates for their spin studio in Wilbraham. eCycle is a high-energy environment spin studio with a diverse schedule that will tailor to your fitness, from beginners to competitive levels. Classes focus on endurance, strength, intervals, high intensity, and recovery. Get your spin on at eCycle. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. eCycle in Wilbraham. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with President of Amherst Town Council and District 2 Councilor Lynn Griesmer. Lynn, before we took uh, the uh, break... Um, I asked you about conversations you've been having with Senator Joe Comerford in particular about funding for the schools. Mm -hmm. Could we talk about that a little? Yeah, I want to really stress that it's with both Senator Comerford and Representative Dom. Um, the M Mass School uh, building... That would be Mindy and Joe. Mindy and Joe, right, thank okay. you. <laughs> and I okay, call then. them Mindy and Joe, but I want to respect, what, <laughs> I want to respect the title they earned. I understand. Uh, they... Uh, We've talked with them consistently about school funding through Mass School Building Authority. 
Masco Building Authority in the past has every year looked at the economy and increased its per square foot reimbursement rate, but they hadn't done that in three years. So Joe and Mindy uh, mm-hmm. actually spent a good deal of time working, talking with the Mass School Building Authority, and in November, they did do an increase. It brought to the town project an additional $3 million plus that is coming from the state. Uh, that's our estimate at this point. This is for the building project for the... New elementary school. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And they continue to work with Mass School Building Authority, but additional projects that might get funded in the future might get an additional bump as well, but ours doesn't. Ours probably, we're probably where we're going to be unless they do something retroactive, which is very unusual. Let me just mention, there's two other things that happen with Mass School Building Authority that people don't understand. And one is they don't pay for the preparation of the site above about 8%. In addition, they don't pay for anything related to solar sustainability and energy efficiency buildings. And yet, they would like you to do that. So one of the reasons that our building is... And you would like to do that. We would absolutely like to do that. We have a net zero energy bylaw. Uh, We passed that in town meeting before we changed government. I actually worked with the people on the revision to that bylaw when it got passed. And fortunately, some of the people who have been very involved in the first development of that bylaw and the revision have continued to be part of the school discussion. They've been in the audience. They've written lots of memos and emails. And we, when we finally have the school and we vote yes on May 2nd, uh, we will have a building that is not just an educational facility of for the future, but we'll have an energy-efficient building that is also educational for the entire community. Which in the long term is much more affordable. Absolutely. We we will save both operating costs in terms of energy and we'll also save operating costs because instead of having three elementary schools, we'll have two. There is no way to go but yes on this vote. I'd like to go back to one thing you said because it's counterintuitive to me, and I want to know if I understand this correctly, but I think what you're saying is that based on how money is given, not given, but is provided to the town from the state for these building projects, and the money that the town will lose if it doesn't accept the money from the state, that by spending its own money, Amherst's own money, Amherst actually has more money to spend on other projects, which sounds counterintuitive, but I think that's what you're saying, is it? It is. So let me elaborate. If we don't build a new school, if we don't go forward with the library, we will be stuck with significant, and I mean millions and millions of dollars worth of repair to those two facilities and no state aid to assist us in that. We will have lost all the state aid we were going to get from the Mass Board of Library Commissioners and from the Mass School Building Authority. And so the, the bill, if you will, to repair those facilities is as much or more than we were going to spend as a town anyway. So On the new buildings? On a new building. And what we have when, you're, when we're done is aging buildings in need of significant repair. 
that still it, need to be replaced. That still need to be replaced. And if if we end up having to spend our money that way, we will not have the money for a fire station. We will not have the money for a Department of Public Works and for what I now refer to as the fifth capital project, and that's road repair. So, Lynn Griesmer, I, I wanted to ask you about road repair and the situation with respect to Chapter 90 funds right now. Yeah. Could you tell us about that? Chapter 90, we should know, it's the money that comes from the state for road repairs, Chapter 90 being the part of the general laws that deals with motor vehicles and roads and all that sort of thing. That's correct. So, interesting, in preparation for um, the Ways and Means hearing today at the UMass Amherst campus, I'll read the following. 43% of our roads in Amherst are either very poor or in poor condition. And we estimate the present cost for repairing those to be at least $49 million. Last summer... Could you stop there and say that again in English for those of us who just had a hard time hearing that? The cost of repairing the roads in Amherst that are in poor or very poor condition is what? $49 million. And I'm just going to harken back to last year when you, Dan Buzz Torres... remember... I remember you had big problems with the potholes on the way to work. I did, and uh, I drove around town with a friend of mine. And this is uh, right after winter, so it's around this time of year in March. And uh, the roads were impassable. I had never seen cones inside a hole in the middle of the road, and yet they were popping up everywhere. And so what I did is I learned how the process works. you got to take photographs, upload them to the website of the town, so that way you create a ticket for DPW in order for them to know that, okay, I got to go patch this hole or do something. But, you know, I, I do have to th compare Amherst to Hadley mm -hmm. and say, how come Hadley and Amherst roads are so different during the winter time? I mean, that's, you know, you're talking about 49 million. I mean, there's a big, there's a big, yeah, go ahead. So I, uh, I, I represent district two. And so I recently also did a road review by driving around my district. I've been to Russia where the roads were in better shape in the inland towards the steeps of Russia than Ouch. those roads, okay? And I, so I asked, I, I think I've said this to many people, if I send one more email to the town manager about the roads in District 2, he's going to shut off my email. So I particularly rode down Heatherstone. There was a woman taking pictures, walking her dog, and Heatherstone Road is just abominable. It's got more potholes than it does good road. So I asked some more about it. I found out that part of the issue there is it never dries out because the trees are over the whole road. Mm -hmm. So as much as we can pave that road, unfortunately, and people don't want to cut down trees, we may have to cut down some trees to create more Sunshine and warmth on the road. So sometimes it's not just the condition of the road and the paving, it's the condition of the surrounding areas. So in the three minutes or so that we have left before you have to attend that Ways and Means Committee yeah. uh, hearing, so um, what about this $49 million? What about Chapter 90 funds? What's going to be done? Well, I hope we see a huge and, I mean, really serious increase. Last year, we spent all of our Chapter 90 funds on one half mile on Bay Road. That's all it covered, one half mile. Mm. So clearly, you're not going to repair all the roads in Amherst with Chapter 90 funds. The town itself 
put another one million or one point five million towards roads when we did our uh, end of the season f uh, budget when we find out how much we have in reserves and we put in more money to roads. I'm hoping that we see a serious plan for catching up on our roads. I've asked for that plan, and I'm hoping we see it, not just with state funds, but local funds. Uh, this is Dan again. Uh, why is it so expensive? Is it, is it personnel? Is it materials? Is it all above? Is it inflation? It's all above, and we only have three companies in Western Mass that do roads. And if the state comes in like they have with Route 9, those companies would rather go to the state. Mm. Mm. Uh, in, in a couple of minutes, I have just a very big question because I'm a Hilltown boy, and I've never really understood it. Amherst, you said you want to keep the character as a town, mm -hmm. but you have a council. And usually I see, where I see a council, I see a mayor as the executive branch. Why is Amherst so oddly different than most municipalities that have councils like yours? You know, this is an area in which the community itself is also split. Some people still treasure the town meeting we had. Some people feel the council form of government is the best way to go. Some people feel that we should move on to a mayor. Some people feel we should add people to the council, make it larger. Some people feel we should make it smaller. Next year, we actually do a charter review, and all of these debates are going to come back up again. And this was an intensely divisive issue. And what you have in Amherst, as I see it, and tell me if you disagree, please, is a system, a form of government that is kind of a compromise, kind of a hybrid. It, it feels that way to some people. And uh, I actually have my own personal opinion about this, and that is that I'm not clear Amherst would like to have one central authority figure. I think that's a tough thing for Amherst. And so I'm not sure mayor works. Well, and hence you don't have one. And since you have a town, essentially a town, town manager. manager. We have a town manager form of government, right? Sort of, kind of, like a mayor, sort of, kind of. Sort of, kind of, uh, yes and no. I mean, he has certain authorities. The council has certain authorities. Obviously, the voters have a lot of authority. They can well, vote us in or vote us out. The cleverest adage I've ever heard, and everybody's heard it, the only thing silent in Amherst is, is the, the age. age. <laughs> uh, so Town Council President Lynn Griesmer, thank you so much for joining us. And look at this. You've got 10 seconds before I promise you could get out of here to make that Ways and Means Committee hearing. Thank you so much. We look forward to talking to you again. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMD News, I'm Jess Tyler. A serious head-on car crash in Greenfield on the Mohawk Trail shut down Route 2 in both directions for several hours yesterday afternoon. A total of five people sustained injuries, including two parents from one vehicle who were airlifted to Bay State Medical Center's trauma unit while their two children were transported by ambulance. A fifth unrelated person was sent by ambulance to Bay State Franklin Medical Center. No word on the cause of the crash. However, police say they did find a suspicious substance in one of the vehicles. The crash is under investigation by Greenfield Police Department, Massachusetts State Police, and the Northwestern DA's office. Applicants for an all-alcohol liquor license in Amherst will find out who gets the coveted license on Thursday. The Board of License Commissioners will hold a virtual hearing at 5 p.m. to determine who out of the four applicants will get the license, which is just one of eight that Amherst is allowed in that category by state law.
The Deerfield Planning Board is seeking more information about a proposed cannabis campus. The site plan review is underway for a proposed marijuana dispensary and cultivation facility and research lab in Routes 5 and 10. Sunny Days has already undergone a peer review and filed responses with the planning board last month, but the board is seeking additional information about certain parts of the plan, including traffic and odor. Sunny Days' public hearing is continued to the planning board's April 3rd meeting. Some scattered light rain and snow showers today. Little to no accumulation. Mild with a high of 40 to 44. Tonight, a steadier rain-snow mix in the valley and steady snow in the hills will change over to all snow everywhere later on in the evening. An overnight low of 28 to 34. Snow and wind tomorrow, heaviest in the morning, a high of 32 to 36. Lingering wind and flurries on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Come on over to the co-op. Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Mike Buckmaster, Senior Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Are you starting a business? Or maybe you're looking for financing to help your current business grow? Our experienced local commercial team can help you out. We'll walk you through the process and let you know what information and forms are needed so you're fully prepared. As a community bank, all our lending decisions are made locally and our commercial lenders are well equipped to ask the right questions to make your loan application move fast and easy. Ready to chat? Give us a call or stop by and see us. We'll meet you at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations. Or if you prefer, we're also happy to meet you at your business. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIA. You can count on your friends at the co-op. More consumers are leaning on credit cards to afford increasingly expensive necessities like food and rent. A new report from TransUnion shows total credit card debt at the end of last year was more than $930 billion. That's an 18.5% increase. If your income is below a certain level, you are not required to file a federal income tax return. But the IRS says it may pay to do so anyway. By claiming certain tax credits, such as the Earned Income Tax Credit, filers can receive a payment from the federal government. Health officials are alerting consumers about two more recalls of eye drops due to contamination risks. The risks could lead to vision problems and serious injury. The drops distributed by Pharmedica and Apotex are used to treat eye irritation and were distributed nationwide. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our recurring weekly segment, Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Hello, Megan Zinn. Buzz, and it's, um, it's What You're Reading. For the month, what you like read every month, um, and I've been just having somebody in to talk about what we've been reading. Um, my guest today is Sean Norton. Hi, Sean. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Um, and Sean is a writer and a musician and a bookseller. He works at Amherst Books, and he recently finished writing a novel about the Austrian Jewish writer Joseph Roth, which he hopes will find a publisher. We hope so too. Um, well, for, you know, since we mentioned that, um, jump in and tell us about uh, Joseph Roth, the writer, because you're obviously yeah. a fan of his. Yes, I am. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, Roth is a writer who I love, or Josef Roth, as he would have been oh, known okay. in the German-speaking lands. No, no, I'm not correcting you. <laughs> we, we, we say Roth in English, too. Yeah. But um, he is a writer I think I, I fell in love with for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, because of the period of time in the area of Europe that he's from, 
uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah. He, um, and um, and and the, he wrote in the twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. Was born at the end of the nineteenth century. So that's a period of time that interests me. Uh, but personally, he also appeals to me because he's a writer that explores the ambiguities of identity and the ambivalence that many of us have about the kinds of uh, suits that we're forced mm-hmm, to wear mm-hmm. um, ver- by virtue of our where we're born right. and, and our, our class or, and, and that kind of thing. And Roth explored uh, the kind of liminal spaces of identity in mm-hmm. a way that I identify with, even though I am not Jewish, was not born in Eastern <laughs> Europe and live in a different time. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of literature is it allows you to connect with a writer like that even though you have... You don't have those kind of connections. Absolutely. Um, tell us some of the titles of his books. Well, he's most famous for his uh, 1932 novel, Radetzky March, mm-hmm. which was uh, unfortunately published just before uh, Hitler came to power. Okay. And uh, being a Jewish writer who wrote in German, the books, most of them were destroyed. But it's regarded now as, as a sort of mid-century classic. Um, it's a book that uh, explores uh, one family through the final phase of the Austro-Hungarian Empire oh, leading up to oh, World War okay. I. Um, mm-hmm. um, it's a beautiful book about a kind of a family saga. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm also particularly fond of his earlier works, which are often regarded as Zeit Romana, or period pieces. Okay. Um, um, I'm um, currently rereading a book called Rebellion, his third novel, which is, um, from the title, you might imagine it's a book about you know masses of people mm-hmm. filling the streets, but it's a book about a very personal rebellion, a, a First World War soldier who is crippled, mm-hmm. um, and who loses his temper with somebody who is uh, odious to him on a tram, probably mm. in Vienna, mm-hmm. and um, the meager pension that he has uh, as, as a result of his injuries is taken away from him. So he, it's a book about a personal rebellion against the injustices mm-hmm. uh, that were being visited upon uh, veterans of the Great War uh, yeah. at that time. Yeah, and probably resonates a lot um, with the way that some things that veterans deal with today. Absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about um, your book that you, you wrote about Joseph Roth. Yeah, it's uh, a book that came about by mistake. I was about <laughs> to take a, a journey in Eastern Europe, uh, taking spending a lot of time on trains. I assembled a playlist of songs from that period in all different genres, mm-hmm. classical music, um, klezmer music, um, Hungarian music, um, jazz music, and uh, I started imagining Roth narrating this and and wondered if he ever took the Orient Express. And around that time, I was, began reading his letters and was, to my astonishment, discovered that he was commissioned to write a novel in 1931 called Orient Express, oh. which undoubtedly, uh, or unaccountably, he never wrote. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a mystery about why he didn't. So my book um, is set in 1931. Um, I have um, audaciously have him as half of the narrator of the book, so I'm writing in his voice. <laughs> and the book kind of explores why he might not have written this book. Yeah. Um, the other character is uh, a young American journalist, a Smith graduate named Sarah Max, mm-hmm. who has recently discovered that she's Jewish. So for her, meeting Joseph Roth is an amazing opportunity, uh, and yet she is confounded by um, his unusual personality. Mm-hmm. So it's a book about a very short-term friendship on a train in 1931. I love that. I love that. Um, my guest is Sean Norton, and we're just talking about what we're reading, although we're at just now we were talking about what he had has been writing and has, has written. Um, so tell me, um, what are you reading right now? Yeah, I'm reading two things. One book that I, um, I'm reading for the second time, I have this curious thing where I, I read books for myself, and then there, I, have a, I have a community of my elders, my father and some older friends who have trouble reading. Mm-hmm. So I read to them for 30 minutes a day. 
and then um, text them the sound files, mm-hmm. and then we talk about it over the phone. So I've recently finished rereading this wonderful book um, by another Jewish journalist from the uh, 20s and 30s, Gabriel Tergit. Mm-hmm. She was um, a, um, it's a, it's a book called Quesabier Takes Berlin. Uh, Quesabier means cheese beer in German. <laughs> okay. um, and it's a book that feels amazingly contemporary. Um, it's set in about 1930 um, in, in Weimar era Berlin. Um, and it's really a book about a social media phenomenon. Um, Quesabier is a uh, cafe singer. Ah, okay. uh, and somebody writes, uh, a journalist writes a piece about him. And this singer becomes temporarily extremely famous. And he becomes what we would call today a social media darling for a very brief period of time. Um, but it's only a flash in the pan. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Norton, do you speak German? Ein bisschen. You what? I'm sorry. Ambition, a little bit. I read better than I speak. By ambition. Yeah, your name is Sean Norton. So what's your fascination with Jews of that era and with German Jews in particular? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, um, it's um, partly I, I was born in Germany to American parents, so I have a little bit of a connection by that way. Um, uh, a lot, another, part of it also started through music. In high school, I developed a, a huge fascination with Kurt Weill. Ah, um, composer okay. of the Three mm-hmm. Penny Opera mm-hmm. and, and later many musicals in the U.S. And um, I had a, a German teacher that year, my senior year of high school, who was uh, was German um, and was writing his Ph.D. on Bertolt Brecht. And he was, now I realize he was only a few years older than me. He was a pretty young right. guy. And um, and he was really my best friend in my senior year of high school. And so I, I developed a strong interest in that period of time. Um, and, I, and it stuck with me, even though in my 20s and 30s I traveled to in my mind to many different places but I sort of came back to it in the last 10 years yeah. yeah I don't think we've ever really talked about it but I've always been fascinated by that period too in college I took an entire class on Brecht oh, um, wow. and it was it was a it was a it was really a drama class so we read them and then worked them out it was it was fantastic um, although I'm not sure how much of it I remember sadly um, so what do you what do you like to read in general um, I wish that I ate as variously as I read. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 I like healthy. to read. Yeah, I like to read all kinds of things. Um, I, I generally have a work of fiction and a work of nonfiction going mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, I was an ethnomusicologist, sort of still am for a long time, so I read a lot of musical ethnography. And oh, okay. My, I have a deep interest in Southeast Asian music, mm-hmm. and um, but um, I, uh, I, I like. I read a lot of literature and translation. Um, mm-hmm. I'm reading this wonderful book right now that I discovered through actually a customer at, um, at Amherst Books. It's from a small British press that specializes in translations of European literature um, called the uh, Piren Press. And it's, this book is uh, Nordic Fauna by Andrea Lundgren, mm-hmm. a young Swedish writer. Um, and, and she really, her, it's a collection of short stories about the way in which the people in our lives and the animals in our lives inhabit our own identity and our own mental space. And it's a slightly mystical book, but it's a book in which the mysticism seems remarkably bona fide and, and, uh, and plausible. So, um, yeah, I read a lot, all kinds of things, but yeah. a lot of European writers, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and do you have a sense of, um, I was going to ask you how, you how your reading affects you as a writer. In some ways, that seems quite obvious. So maybe I'm going to turn the question around and say, um, as a, how does the fact that you're a writer and the way that you write affect you as a reader? Well, that's an interesting question. 
I'm fortunate to be in a really wonderful book club, in, which is reading 19th century literature from the perspective of writers. Wow. And it's, um, and so that's, um, it's, it's a good question. I think I, um, it's funny, I remember my very first desire to write a book um, was when uh, we first moved back to the U.S. There was a, a, a one single white fire engine in my town in New York State that I wanted to write a story about. <sighs> But I didn't yet know how to read or write. Oh, um, so I, I had the requisite skills of a writer right off, the, the desire to write and the sense of, uh, of inadequacy, which seems to be necessary right, to be of a course. writer. Um, <laughs> Very but, early form of it. Yes, but um, uh, I get all kinds of ideas. Uh, and and like, I think like many writers, I struggle to worry about whether I'm just imitating people mm -hmm, I love. Um, and um, But I also know that it's sort of, food uh, um, for the, the soup that you need. Uh, I also read a lot of poetry as well, mm -hmm. which um, inspires me. I, no, I don't feel like I know as much about poetry as I do about literature or fi writing fiction and, 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 um, and nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the wonderful thing about reading poetry when you're a, um, a, a fiction writer is it kind of makes you see words differently, which is, Definitely. Yeah, which is really nice. Uh, Bill, you had a question. When I was in college, a teacher was Alastair Reed, who was a translator of Pablo Neruda. And it made me sensitive, somewhat sensitive to the idea of what translation does. And you say you read a lot of works in translation. I'm wondering how that affects your ability to appreciate the work you're reading in translation. Are you sensitive to the translation? Are you saying, I'm not sure that that's exactly what the author initially said? How does that work for you as a reader? I think it makes me more critical. Um, it's interesting. I'm rereading this translation of the, that I mentioned this this book, Rebellion by Roth, and you know I notice that there's that the main character is an, runs an organ grinder, which is those things you crank, mm -hmm. and it produces a melody. And in the trans, it's a very good translation by a translator who's a hero of mine. But he variously translates it as a hurdy gurdy and ah. an organ grinder, which are two very different things. So in, on the one hand, I'm always it, it makes me attentive to little mistakes. Um, in ways that um, I might not be if I was reading a book that was in its original language. Um, but um, it also, you know, it depends on the language. You know, if um, I like Russian literature, but and I've often been astounded at looking at the opening page of two different translations of Brothers Karamazov and Rosing. Wow, how, how much choice a, a translator has, right? So it, to some extent, it also makes me aware that every story can be told a different way. And, um, it, and it gives me a sense of the latitude of choices that not just a translator, but a writer has, that this original text can be rendered in different ways and still, to a, some extent, tell the same story, but also inflect it differently. So it gives me a sense of the ranges of options that are available. Wow, really interesting. Um, so my guest is Sean Norton, and we're just talking about what, what we've been reading, what Sean's been reading. But I think we'll take a break now, and... Um, then we'll come back and ask Sean some more questions. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. You spend seven or eight hours a night together and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So when you're in my store trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. Printing costs sky high? Businesses spend up to 3% of revenue generating documents, and many businesses fail to budget the expense. Sound familiar? Get a handle on your printing costs with Total Print Pro from HL Dempsey in West Springfield. HL Dempsey will do an on-site analysis of your copy and print usage and come up with a customized, comprehensive solution that'll simplify your world and save you money. Go to hldempsey.com to find out more. HL Dempsey, serving Western New England for over 60 years. HL Dempsey, just dependable. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. W Hi, this is Megan Zinn, and we're, it's Writer's Block, and we're talking what you're reading. Although my first question for my guest, Sean Norton, um, is, um, Sean, as we said, works at Amherst Books in Amherst, and, and you're, you've newly returned to book selling. You've had some other careers, but you um, cut your teeth selling books um, when you were a very young man, and, and then um, worked at bookstores for quite a while. Um, what's the um, return to bookstores like? Mm. How, how is this round different and the same yeah well um it's it's the same in that the the core of customers that i love are the people who come in and um tell you about what they're reading and ask you about your life and mm -hmm. um uh, those people are still there um 
The difference is that all the other people aren't. <laughs> we yeah. only have the, and um, and it's um, and so I, as I was, you know, explaining off air, I feel like these the the people who who are our customers are like these pilgrims attending to a sacred flame, and um, I'm I'm thankful for every one of them, and um, it's um, you know, there's what I see is an immense amount of loyalty mm-hmm. to uh, their community um, and to reading and literature, and um, and you know. If we're those of us who have our misgivings about certain aspects of capitalism, sometimes forget the the, the profound relationships that mm-hmm. ha- happen in they these can, exchanges. Yeah. Um, and you know, in my first go around in, in book selling, it was some of my customers who convinced me that I should go to college, and 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 I'm I'm thankful to them for, yeah. for this day. And and um, coming back to it now, it's you know, it's 25 years later, um, and. The um, the trade has shrunk a little bit, yep. but it's also vibrant in other mm-hmm, ways, mm-hmm. and um, and it's 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 lovely, uh, it's actually lovely to be back. Wow, that's wonderful. I, there's a recent article, I think, in the Boston Globe, like two weeks ago, about how bookstores in Boston are doing, in the Boston area, are doing really well, and there are several new ones, and it is an, a, a customer base like that. They love the stores, and they talked a little bit about how the um, pandemic is is part. Of it that it made people realize how important their their community businesses are and their relationships with them and and the you know the realness of going in and buying a book when you couldn't go anywhere for for a really long time. Um, it, it also used to be that you could you needed those big chains to access titles. That's not yeah. true anymore. Nope. Your in, your indie can can get anything for you. Right? Eventually. Yeah. 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 You yeah. can buy anything. I kind of use yeah. um broad. T- t- to mention another bookstore, I, I use Broadside kind of as my Amazon. When I want a book, I might look it up on Amazon, and then I usually go to Broadside's website and order it from them. And yeah. and, and um, or the Amherst book or Amherst yeah. books, I could do that too. Um, and you know, so I, I can't get it tomorrow, maybe. Although my, maybe I can, or, or I could get it right now if I go over to the bookstore and they have it. So um, yeah, the bookstores are, are you know not surprisingly one of my favorite places in the world. How would, How unusual is it for a community? or a region to have these indies the way our region does. And I'm thinking about you know, the World Eye and, uh, in Franklin County and BookLink and the Broadside here in Northampton Odyssey, and the Odyssey and Half yep. Hadley and Amherst mm-hmm. Books and Amherst, and the list goes on and on. And a bunch of, um, a bunch of uh, used bookstores as well. Used bookstores yeah. as well. Are we simply an outlier, or is this something that we can say this is part of the fabric of a larger community of book lovers i think we are a bit of an outlier i would i would guess um but probably not as much as we uh as at least i sometimes think i know i um um was able to travel back to my hometown in northern virginia um a year ago and um was thrilled to discover that when the barnes and noble went out of business it was replaced by an independent bookseller <laughs> um and and the used bookshop in my hometown in, in northern virginia has been there since um i was a child i i worked in a different one than that town that no longer exists but the one that was there growing up has been there all along and and um so uh you know i think um but I do think we are, to some extent, an outlier because of the uniqueness of our community in this area um, in terms of the actual number of, of bookshops we have. Yeah, and so. I'm sure it's the college community. I mean, I, 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 I lived in Ann Arbor for a long time, and they've, of course, always had a vibrant um, 
you know, book books, and they have a, a newish bookstore um, that probably opened ten years ago that is um, very successful, as far as I, as far as I know. It's a beautiful place. So, but um, I think you know we're lucky to live in these communities where people value books as much as. Can I ask one more question about this? Mm-hmm. Because the feeling I have in Amherst Books and the Broadside and the other indies is when you walk in, it's like going home. Mm-hmm. It's like you're welcome here, mm-hmm. and that's really different than going to a computer. And I'm wondering if you could just spend a little bit of time telling us about how you create that Mm -hmm. feeling of making people feel at home. Well, uh, yeah, I can only speak for myself, but I I certainly, I say hello to everyone that comes in the store, you know, and um, I I think for me, it started, you know, when I, my first bookstore job was a used bookstore in my hometown, uh, a few minutes away from where I uh, grew up. And um, when I was 18. I didn't go to college. My family was in kind of disarray. And having this opportunity to manage a pretty large used bookstore gave me a a chance to make for myself a home that I really didn't have in my regular home. And, 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 um, and so it became a way for me to invite people into what I considered my home. And so I, I've always taken it not just personally, but it's actually sort of woven into my identity. And I feel like, um, my colleagues and, and just about every bookstore I've ever worked in kind of have some version of this. And I, I certainly feel this is the same at, at Amherst Books. And I'm, I know this is the case with, with the other booksellers. Um, and um, so I, you know, it's a kind of a personal mission. I love to find books for people. Uh, I love to help people find what they're looking for. And, and um, people will sometimes be embarrassed. There was a guy who came in yesterday who was, knew he was looking for a book for his for his aunt and he could remember almost nothing about it and this one word <laughs> cued me into he was looking for this new book by a scientist named Ed Young and I found it for him and he was amazed and and it was a good feeling. Oh, the wonderful treasure hunt. You, you know, Megan, I, I think that Sean Norton, being a writer, you should do a new screenplay which is a sequel to You've Got Mail, but this time, let the big <laughs> store go out of business. Exactly. I love that. Um, and, I, I, you know, it's reminding me, as you're talking about how the bookstore creates a home, I recently reread um, a wonderful book by Louise Erdrich, which is fairly, it's her newest, um, which is The Sentence. And it's about COVID, and it's about bookstores, and it's about how bookstores are the home of the community. Um, and in this case, it is a native-owned bookstore, because um, it's about Louise Erdrich's bookstore, um, which she, she owns one in, in Minneapolis. Um, and it really, that book really lays out that kind of world where your bookstore is your home and, and how COVID affected that and how, um, how the bookstore um, kind of took care of people too during COVID. Um, it was really lovely. Um, well, to wrap it up, my, my guest is Sean Norton. And just to wrap it up, tell us a book that you have not read that's either n- maybe newly coming out or that you've just been wanting to get to that you're looking forward to reading. Well, I'm um, looking forward to reading this new book, uh, newly translated, uh, about pa- Patrick Modiano, mm-hmm. Scene of the Crime. Um, he is a French writer who is uh, writes almost exclusively about Paris, um, mm-hmm. and in his books, each each arrondissement could be uh, an, a miniature galaxy. Oh, wow. Um, and um, he's another writer who, who had a sort of challenging childhood mm-hmm. that in, in flex his, his adulthood, and um, he really speaks to me and... Um, so I'm looking forward looking to reading forward that to one, that book. Scenes of the Crime by Patrick Modiano. Oh, wonderful. So my guest has been Sean Norton, and we've been talking books. Um, and thank you for being here. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Great. And this is Talk to Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Please remember, like we should, to walk the walk as well. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's